the teams I've seen be really successful at deploying ML products, they've had people who formally or informally have taken on that hot responsibility for the whole thing and kind of have the people who are writing the inner loops of the assembly kind of sitting next to the people who are, you know, creating the models. You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show about machine learning in the real world. And I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. This is a conversation with Pete Warden, well-known hacker and blogger. Among many things that he's done in his life, he started a company, Jetpack, which was a very early mobile machine learning app company that was bought by Google in 2014. He's also been a tech lead and staff engineer on the TensorFlow team since then. So he's been at TensorFlow since the very beginning. And he's written a book about taking ML models and making them work on embedded devices, everything from an Arduino to a Raspberry Pi. And it's something that I'm really passionate about, so we really get into it in the technical details. I think you'll really enjoy this interview. Quick disclaimer for this conversation. We had a few glitches in the audio, which are entirely my fault. I've been traveling with my family to Big Sur, which is a lot of fun, but I didn't bring all my podcasting gear, as you can probably see. And so if anything's inaudible, please check the transcription, which is provided in the notes. All right, Pete, so I have a lot of questions for you, but since this is my show, I'm going to start with the, the question that I would want to ask <laughs> if I was listening to this. <laughs> tell me again about the time that you hacked the Raspberry Pi to train neural nets with the GPU. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, uh, that, was, that was really fun. Um, so back when the Raspberry Pi first came out, it had a GPU in it, but it wasn't a GPU you could do anything useful with, um, uh, because, oh, well, unless you just draw things, and he wants to just draw things with a GPU. Um, but there was some reverse engineering, uh, that had been happening and some crazy sort of, um, engineers out there on the hardware side um, who'd actually managed to get a uh, manual uh, describing how to use the, uh, how to program the Raspberry Pi GPU at a low level. And this had been driving me crazy uh, ever since I'd um, been at Apple years ago, because I was always able to use like GLSL and all of these comparatively high level languages to program GPUs, but I was always trying to get them to do things that the designers hadn't intended. Um, <laughs> like when I was at Apple, I was trying to get them to do sort of image processing uh, rather than just doing, you know, straightforward graphics. And I never, <laughs> and you may hear a dog in the background, that is our new puppy, <laughs> Nutmeg. But I always wanted to be able to program them. I knew that there was an assembler level that I could program them at if I only had access. And I spent five years at Apple trying to persuade like ATI and NVIDIA to give me access. Uh, and I actually managed to persuade them, but then the driver people at Apple were like, no, don't give him access because <laughs> then we'll have to support <laughs> the crazy things he's doing. Um, so when the Raspberry Pi came along- And this is Raspberry Pi one or two or three? This was like back in the Raspberry Pi one days. Um, so it was, you know, not long after it first came out and they actually gave you the data sheet for the GPU, uh, which described the um, instruction format for programming all of these weird little hardware blocks that were inside the GPU. Um, and there really wasn't anything like an assembler. There wasn't... Um, <laughs> you know basically anything that you would expect to be able to use all you had was the raw like hey these are the machine code instructions um and especially back in those days in the raspberry pi one days there wasn't even any simd instructions are uh, really on the raspberry pi because it was using an arm v6 because... what is a simd instruction oh sorry a uh, single input multiple data so if um if you're familiar with x86, it's things like SEE or AVX. It's basically a way of saying, hey, I've got an array of, you know, um, 32 numbers, um, uh, multiply them all. Um, and 
specifying that in like one instruction versus having a loop that goes through all 32 instructions and um you know does them one at a time so it's a really nice way of kind of speeding up anything that's doing a lot of number crunching whether it's graphics or whether it's in our case machine learning um and i really wanted to get some cool image recognition stuff uh you know this is back when AlexNet was all the way i wanted to get AlexNet running in less than like 30 seconds frame on this raspberry pi um and the arm v6 really was it was like i, I think it was just like broadcom had a like uh you know uh from dumpster full of like <laughs> these chips they couldn't sell because they were so old <laughs> this is not official i have no idea if this is true but it feels true um and so they were like oh sure use them for this whatever this raspberry pi thing that we're we're thinking about and they were so old that it was actually really hard to even find like compiler support they didn't have um especially these kinds of modern optimizations that you would expect to have but I knew that this GPU could potentially do what I wanted. <laughs> so uh, I spent some time with the data sheet. There were a bunch of like handful of people doing the open source hacking on this stuff. So I was able to kind of, you know, fork some of their projects. Um, and uh, actually, funnily enough, um, the uh, some of the Raspberry Pi. Um, the sort of founders uh, were actually uh, very interested in this too. Um, so I ended up uh, kind of hacking away um, and managed to figure out how to do um, this sort of matrix uh, multiplication. Um, and that, uh, funnily enough, one of the people who was really into this was actually Evan Upton. So. <laughs> the founder of Raspberry Pi. So he um, uh, he was actually one of the few people who actually replied on the forums when I was like sending out like, you know, distress signals when I was getting stuck on stuff. Um, so anyway, yeah, I ended up being able to use the GPU um, to do this matrix multiplication. So I could actually run uh, like AlexNet to recognize a cat or a dog in like, you know, two seconds rather than 30 seconds. So, <laughs> and it was some of the most fun I, I've had in like years because it really was just like trying to string t things together with like sticky tape and chicken wire. Um, and yeah, I had a blast. How does it even work? Like you're writing assembly and like running it on, on this, on a GP, like what, what, like what environment are you, are you writing this in? <laughs> Um, so I was just using, pretty much using a text editor, and then there were a couple of different people had done some work on assembly projects. Uh, none of them really worked, uh, or they didn't work for what I needed. So I ended up sort of hacking them up together. So I then feed in the text into the assembler, which would produce the raw kind of command streams, and then I had to figure out the right memory addresses to kind of write to from the Raspberry Pi CPU to like upload this program. And then that program would be sitting there in the, I think there was something like, um, you know, some ridiculously small number of instructions. I could run like 64 instructions in there or something or 128. Uh, it, the program would be sitting there on all of these, I think there was like four or eight cores. I would then have to like kick them off I'd have to like feed in the start, feed in the memory from the, and it was, I mean, honestly, it was like, I, if in terms of software engineering, it was a disaster, <laughs> but it, it worked. <laughs> well, like what kind of like debugging messages do you get? I mean, I'm thinking back to the college and writing this. I remember the computer would just crash. I think when there was like invalid. Uh... Well, I was actually um, writing out to a pixel. So I could tell by the pixel color <laughs> how far through the <laughs> the program that it had actually got, <laughs> which it I'm colorblind, so that didn't help. <laughs> but 
but yeah it was it was it was really like getting it was getting down and dirty it's uh it was the sort of thing where you can just like lose yourself for a few weeks in some really obscure technical problems and uh oh i mean having worked on projects kind of like that how did you maintain hope that the project would finish in a way that it would work i think that might be the hardest thing for me to work on something like that well, at the time, I was working on a startup, and it, this seemed a much more tractable problem <laughs> than <laughs> all of the other things I was dealing with at the startup. So it was, in a lot of ways, it was just uh, it was procrastination <laughs> on dealing with worse problems. So great answer, yeah. <laughs> and, and I guess what was the what was the reason that the Raspberry Pi included this GPU that they wouldn't actually let you? like directly access was this for like streaming video or something yeah it really was designed for like i think early 2000 set top boxes and things so it was sort of you know it, you were going to be able to draw like a few triangles and uh, but you weren't going to be able to run any like it wasn't designed to run any shaders or anything on it so um you know glsl and things like that weren't even like considered like uh for it at that time i think there's been some work on that since i think maybe with some more modern versions of the gpus um but back in the last week my one days it's just like you know you're gonna draw some triangles and that's <laughs> have you been following the the raspberry pi sense like do you have thoughts on on the four and did did they talk to you about what to what to include there? Maybe <laughs> no, no. I think they knew better than because uh, I'm I'm not exactly a <laughs> an average average user. Uh, I mean, in f- as as a sort of a general developer, it's like fantastic because the Raspberry Pi Four is this like beast of a machine with like multi threading, and it's got those SIMD instructions I talked about, like. There's, I think, support for GLSL and all these modern OpenGL things in the GPU. Um, but as kind of a, you know, a, a hacker, I'm like, oh, it's just kind of, <laughs> yeah, it's all kind of, so that, yeah, that's <laughs> exactly. Well, it's funny because I think I met you when I was trying to get TensorFlow to run on the Raspberry Pi 3, which is like literally just trying to like compile it and and like link in the proper libraries. And I, I remember like, I remember completely getting stuck. I mean, I'm, I'm ashamed to, to tell you that and reaching out to the forums and being like, wow, the tech support from TensorFlow is unbelievably good that it's <laughs> answering my questions. Well, I think I think you ended up, um, you found my email address as well. I think you dropped me an email. And again, I think you caught me in the middle of uh, procrastinating on something, <laughs> something that I was supposed to be doing. And I was like, oh, wow, this is way more fun. <laughs> let me uh, let me spend some time on this. Um, but no, I mean, you shouldn't underestimate that like TensorFlow has so many dependencies, um, you know, which is which is pretty normal for like a Python sort of cloud server sort of project because they're essentially kind of free in that environment. You just do like a pip install or something and it, it all just works. But as soon as you're moving over to something that's, you know, not the vanilla sort of x86 Linux, um, you know, environment that it's expecting, you suddenly sort of have to pay the price of trying to figure out all of these, you know, where did this come from? Right, right. So I guess one one question that comes to mind for me that I don't know if if you feel like it's a fair question for you to answer, but I'd love your thoughts on it is, um, you know, every, it seems like everyone trains their models, except for people at Google, train their models on NVIDIA um, GPUs. And, you know, I'm told that's because of the CUDA library that like essentially like compiles the code and CUDNN that kind of makes a low level language for writing um, you know, ML components and then, you know, compiling them onto the NVIDIA chip. But, you know, if, if Pete Warden can just like, you know, directly write code to do matrix multiplication <laughs> on <laughs> like a, a chip that's not even trying to like publish its docs and let anyone do this. <laughs> Where's the disconnect? Like, why don't we see more chips being used for compiling? Why doesn't TensorFlow work better on top of more different kinds of um, architecture? Like, I know that was one of the, I think that was one of the original design goals of TensorFlow, but we haven't seen maybe the explosion of different um, GPU architectures that I think we might have been expecting back in like 2016, 2017. 
Yeah, and I I can't speak so directly to uh, the TensorFlow experience, but I can say more generally um, what I've seen happening, you know, speaking personally, is um, it's the damn researchers. They keep coming up with new techniques (laughs) and better ways of training models. Um, And uh, what generally tends to happen is um, it follows the same... um, model that sort of Alex Kozeski originally did um, and his uh, colleagues with AlexNet, where the thing that blew me away when I first started getting into deep learning was, you know, Alex had made his code available and he had not only been working at the high level model creation side, he'd also been really hacking on the CUDA um, kernels to run on the GPU to get stuff running fast enough. So it was this really interesting having to kind of understand all these high-level concepts, these cutting-edge concepts of uh, machine learning, while also being this, um, you know, in a loop kind of assembly, essentially, not quite down to that level, but like intrinsic sort of, you know, really thinking about every cycle. Um, And what has tended to happen is that as new techniques have come in, um, the researchers tend to just for their own to run their own experiments they have to write things that run as fast as possible so they've had to learn how to you know the default for this is CUDA so you end up with um, you know new techniques coming in as uh, CUDA implementations usually there's a C++ CPU implementation that may or may not be particularly optimized and then there's a CUDA, there's definitely a CUDA implementation. And then the techniques that actually catch on, the rest of the world kind of has to then figure out how to take um, what's often, you know, great code for its purpose, but is written by researchers for research purposes, and then figure out how to port it to different systems, you know, with different precisions. And there's this whole, um, you know, hidden sort of, amount of work that people have to do to take all of these emerging techniques and get them running across all architectures and i think that's true across the um you know across the whole ecosystem um and you know it's one of the reasons that i really love for experimenting if you're in the raspberry pi sort of form factor but you can afford um to be burning like 10 watts of power uh, you know, grab a Jetson or Jetson Nano or something, because then you've got essentially the same GPU that you'd be running in a desktop machine, but just on a uh, um, a much smaller um, form factor. Totally, yeah. It makes me a little sad that the Raspberry Pi doesn't have an NVIDIA chip on it. <laughs> I just, I, the uh, heatsink alone would be... <laughs> You know, one 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 thing I noticed. So, you know, your your book is is excellent on um, on kind of embedded ML. And actually, we I was in a different interview, which we should pull that clip of um, interview with uh, Pete Skomarek, and we both had your book on our desk. So we had, <laughs> I don't know if you know him, but uh, yeah, yeah, no, I'm I'm, I'm a good uh, yeah. Pete Pete's awesome. He's been doing some amazing stuff too. He's another he's another person who occasionally catches me when I'm procrastinating and I'm able to. <laughs> Offer some advice and vice versa. Nice, maybe we should have a neighborhood. Uh, <laughs> yeah, procrastination, hacking procrastination list. <laughs> but I guess it's, it seems like pretty obvious that, um, you know, you do some interesting projects in your house or for personal stuff. I was wondering if you could talk about any um, any of your own kind of personal ML hack projects. Oh, that's, that's a really... Um, so I'm obsessed with actually trying to get a magic wand working well <laughs> yeah, tell me more one of the things i get to see is with these um like applications it, that are being produced by industry professionals for you know things like android android's phones smartphones in general and um, the gesture recognition using accelerometers uh, just works really well um on these phones and because people are able to get it working really well in the commercial realm. But I 
I haven't seen that many examples of it actually working well, um, you know, as open source always. And, you know, even the example that we ship with uh, TensorFlow, uh, like Micro, uh, is not um, good enough. Like it's, you know, it's, it's a proof of concept, but it doesn't work um, nearly as well as I want. Um, so I have been, you know, sort of keep, that's been one of my main projects I keep coming back to is, okay, how can I actually, uh, you know, just sort of do a sort of, you know, Zorro sign or something holding, I've got the, uh, little, um, Arduino uh, on my desk here and sort of, you know, do that and have, have it recognized, you know, I want to be able to sort of, you know, do that to the TV screen and have it like change channels or something. Um, and so what I really want to be able to do, um, we actually released some of this stuff as part of uh, Google I.O. So I'll share a link. Um, uh, maybe you can put in the description afterwards. Um, but my end goal, because these things actually have Bluetooth, I want it to be able to emulate um, a keyboard, or a um, mouse or a gamepad controller um, and actually be able to sort of, you know, customize it so that you can, act, or like a MIDI keyboard even as well, and actually customize it so you can do some kind of gesture and then have it like, you know, you do a Z and it presses the Z key or something on your virtual keyboard and that does something interesting with your, like, whatever you've got it connected up to. Um, so that isn't quite working yet. But if I hopefully I get some tough enough problems um, in my main job that I'll procrastinate and uh, <laughs> spend some more time on that. Man, I hope for that too. I guess yeah. <laughs> for, for people that um, you know maybe aren't experts in embedded um, computing systems, could you describe the difference between a Raspberry Pi and an Arduino, and then the sort of different challenges in in getting ML to run on a Raspberry Pi versus an Arduino? Yeah, and. Um, at a top level, um, the biggest difference is the amount of memory. Um, this uh, Arduino um, Nano BLE Sense 33 um, is, uh, I think it has like 256K of RAM and uh, either like 512K or something like that of um, flash, kind of like, you know, read-only uh, memory. So it's... Um, this really, really small environment that you actually have to run in. And it means you don't have um, a lot of things that you would expect to have through an operating system like files or printf or, um, you know, you, you're really having to look at every single byte. You know, the printf function itself, in a lot of implementations, it will actually take up about 25 kilobytes of code size just having printf because printf is essentially this big switch statement of oh have you got a percent f oh uh, here's how you print a um you know a float value and there's like hundreds of these like modifiers and things you never even think of for printing things you never even imagine all that code has to get filed in if you if you actually have printf in the system so all of these devices um that we're aiming at, they often have, you know, only a couple of hundred kilobytes of space to write your programs in. So you may be sensing a theme here. I love trying to sort of fit, you know, take take modern stuff and kind of like fit it back into something that's like a Commodore sixty four. So, so okay, it seems like you know Pete Warden doesn't always need a practical reason to do something, but <laughs> what might be the practical reason using Arduino versus a Raspberry Pi? Well, luckily, uh, I've actually managed to justify um, my 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 hobby and turn it into um, you know my full time project because um, one great example of where we use these is I actually I don't see my phone here. I was going to hold up the phone, but you know what a phone looks like. Um, if you think about things like, uh, and I won't say the full word because it will set off people's uh, phones, but the OKG wake word um or the wake words on apple or amazon um when you're using a voice interface um you want your phone to wake up when it hears you say that word um but you what it turns out is you can't afford 
to even run the main ARM application processor 24 seven um, to listen out for that word because your battery would just be drained. These um, main CPUs use maybe sort of somewhere around a watt of power when they're sort of up and running, when you're like browsing the web or interacting with it. Um, so what they all do instead is actually have an, what's often called an always-on um, hub or chip or sensor hub or something like that, where the main CPU is powered down, uh, so it's not using any energy, uh, but this much more limited but much more lower energy um, chip is actually running and listening to the microphone and uh, running a very, very small, you know, someone on the order of like, you know, 30 kilobytes uh, models, ML model to say, hey, has somebody said that word that or that wake word phrase that I'm supposed to be listening out for? Um, and they have exactly the same challenges. Uh, you know, you only have like a few hundred kilobytes at most. You're running on a pretty low-end processor. You don't have an operating system. Every byte counts, so you have to kind of like squeeze the library as small as possible. Um, and so that's kind of one of the real-world applications uh, where we're actually using this TensorFlow Lite Micro. Um, and more generally, uh, you know, the Raspberry Pi is, you know, you're probably looking at you know, $25, something like that. Um, the equivalent, which the Raspberry Pi Foundation just launched, uh, I think last year, for, or maybe at the start of this year, um, that's kind of the equivalent of the Arduino is the Pico. And that's, I think, like $3 retail. Um, and the Raspberry Pi, again, uses like one or two watts of power so if you're going to run it for a day you essentially need the phone battery um, that it will kind of you know run down over the course of a day whereas the pico is only using like 100 milliwatts you know a tenth of a watt um, and so you can run it for sort of 10 times longer on the same battery or you can run it on a, on a much smaller battery um, and so these embedded devices tend to be used where there's like power constraints or there's cost constraints or even where there's form factor constraints because you know this thing is even smaller than a raspberry pi zero um and you can like kind of stick it anywhere and it will survive being run over and <laughs> all of those sorts of things so can you describe like let's take for example like a speech recognition system can you describe the differences of how you would think about training and deploying if it was going to like the cloud or a big desktop server versus a Raspberry Pi versus an Arduino? Yeah, and um, the theme again is size and how much uh, space you actually have on these systems. So you'll be thinking always about how, how can I make this model as small as possible? Um, you know, you're looking at making the model probably in the tens of kilobytes for doing, you know, we have this example of doing speech recognition and I think it uses like a 20 kilobyte model. So um, you're going to be sacrificing accuracy and a whole bunch of other stuff in order to get something that will actually fit on this really low energy um, device, but hopefully it's still accurate enough that it's useful. <laughs> right. So how do you do that? Like, how do you how do you reduce the size without compromising accuracy? Can you describe like some of the the techniques? Yeah. Um, so I actually just um, blogged about one uh, trick that I've seen used, um, but I realized I hadn't seen in the literature very much, which is where um, you know the classic going back to AlexNet um, approach. After you do a convolution in like an image recognition network you often have like a pooling stage. So that pooling stage, um, you know, would either do average pooling or max pooling. And what that's doing is it's taking the output of the um, convolution, which is often the same size as the input, but with a lot more channels. 
and then it's taking blocks of like two by two um, values and it's saying, hey, I'm going to only take the maximum of that two by two block. Um, and so take four values and output one value or do the same, but do averaging. Um, and that um, helps with accuracy, but because you're outputting these very large um, outputs from the convolution, uh, that means that you have to have a lot of RAM because you have to hold the input for the convolution um, and you also have to hold the output, which is the same size as the input, but typically has more channels. Um, so the memory size is even larger. Um, so instead of doing that, a common sort of technique that I've seen in the industry is to use a stride of two on the convolution. So instead of having the sliding window just slide over one pixel every time as you're doing the convolutions, you actually sort of have it jump two pixels horizontally and vertically. Um, and that has the effect of outputting the uh, same um, the same result as you would, or the same size, um, same number of elements you would get if you did a convolution plus a sort of a two by two pooling. Uh, but it means that you actually do less compute and you don't have to have nearly as much kind of active memory um, kicking around. Um, Interesting. And, I had thought yeah. when you said the, the size of the model, you know, you, it was just the size of the model's parameters, but it sounds like you also, I mean, obviously you need some active memory, but it's hard to imagine yeah. that even could be on the order of magnitude of the size of the, the model, like the literally the pixels of the image and then the kind of intermediate results I guess, can be can be bigger than the model? Yeah, I mean, well, that's kind of the nice thing about convolution is you get to reuse the weights um, in a way that you really don't with, like, fully connected layers. Um, so you can actually end up with um, convolution models, the activation memory, taking up a substantial um, amount of space. And I guess I'm also getting into the weeds a bit here because the obvious answer to your question is also quantization, like taking these floating point models and just turning them into 8-bit because that immediately slashes all of your memory sizes by 75%. And what about, I mean, I, I've seen people go down to 4-bits or even 1-bit. Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah. There's been some really, really interesting work Um a colleague of mine, actually, uh, again, I'll send on a link to the paper, um, but looked at, I think it's something about the Pareto optimal, like bit depth for ResNet is like four bits or something like that. Um, and there's been some really, really good research about um, going down to sort of four bits or two bits, or even going down to sort of, you know, binary networks with one bit. Um, and the biggest challenge uh, from our side is that um, CPUs aren't generally optimized for anything other than like 8-bit arithmetic. Um, so um, going down to these lower bit depths, um, you know, requires some advances in the, uh, the hardware that we're actually using. Do you have any thoughts about actually training on the edge. I feel like people have been talking about this for a long time, but I haven't seen yeah. examples where you actually do some of the training and then it like passes that upstream. Is that what I've seen is that especially um, on the kind of embedded edge, uh, it's very hard to get labeled data. Um, and right now, like there's been some great advances in unsupervised learning, um, but our workhorse approach to solving like image and audio and accelerometer kind of recognition problems is still around um, actually uh, taking big label data sets and just running them through training. And so if you don't have some kind of implicit labels on the data that you're gathering on the edge, which you almost never do, uh, it's very hard to justify training. The one case where I actually have seen this um, look like it's pretty promising is for um, uh, industrial monitoring. So when you've got like a piece of machinery and you basically want to know if it's about to shake itself to bits, 
because it's got kind of you know um, mechanical problem um, and you have an accelerometer or a microphone sensor kind of sitting on this device um, and the hard part is telling whether it's actually about to shake itself to bits or whether that's just how it normally like kind of <laughs> like vibrates um, and so one promising approach for this kind of uh, predictive maintenance is to um, actually spend the first 24 hours just assuming that everything is normal and kind of learning, okay, this is normality. And then only after that, start to kind of like look for things that are outside of the, so you're implicitly labeling like the first 24 hours as, okay, this is normal data. And then you're looking for anything that's kind of like an excursion um, out beyond that. So that sort of makes sense for um, some kind of a training approach. Um, but even there, I still actually push people to consider um, things like using embeddings um, and other approaches that don't require full back propagation um, to do the training. Um, you know, for example, if you have. Um, an audio model that has to recognize a particular person saying word, uh, try and have that model produce a sort of an n-dimensional vector that's an embedding and then have the person say the word three times and then just use k-nearest neighbor sort of approaches to kind of tell if subsequent utterances are close in that embedding space and then you've sort of done something that looks like learning, you know, from a user perspective, but you don't have to have all this machinery of like variables and changing the neural network and you're just doing it as a post-processing action. Do you see a lot of like actual real world uses, like like actual companies kind of shipping stuff like models into microcontrollers? Yeah. Um, and again, this is... Um, this is hard to talk about because, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, these, these aren't like, you know, sort of Android apps and things where people are, you know, fairly, you know, open and open source. A lot of these are pretty sort of, um, you know, well-established old school industrial companies and automotive companies and things like that. Um, but we do see, uh, you know, there's, there's a bunch of, um, apps that are already or a bunch of products out there that are already using ml under the hood i mean one of the examples i like to give is when i joined google back in 2014 um i met uh raziel alvarez um who's now actually at facebook doing some very similar stuff uh, i believe but he was um responsible for a lot of the okg work um and they had been shipping you know they they've been shipping on billions of phones mm -hmm. using ML and specifically using deep learning to do this kind of recognition. Um, but I, I hadn't, I had no idea that they were shipping these like, you know, 30 kilobyte models to do ML and they had been for years. Um, and from my understanding from what I've seen of like Apple and other companies, they've been using like very similar approaches in the speech world for a long time. Um, but they, a lot of these areas don't have the same kind of expectation that you will publish and publicize work that, you know, we tend to in the kind of you know, the modern ML world. So it sort of, it flies below the radar. But yeah, these, these, these things are, you know, there's ML models probably running in your house uh, almost certainly right now that are running on embedded hardware. And, and I guess besides the audio recognition, what might those ML models in my house be doing? Can you give me like a little bit of a flavor for that? Yeah, so um, accelerometer um, recognition, like trying to tell if somebody's like doing a gesture or if, you know, if a piece of machinery is um, doing what you're expecting, like, you know, the washing machine or the dishwasher or things like that, trying to actually take in these um, signals from kind of like noisy sensors and actually try and tell what's actually happening. Um, you ML model my washing machine? Um, I, would not, I would not be at all surprised. 
<laughs> wow. Um, yeah. I guess another question that I had for you thinking about like the, your long tenure on um, TensorFlow, which is such a well-known um, library, is, is kind of like, how, how has that evolved over the, the time you've been there? Like, has, have things surprised you in the directions that it's taken? And, and I mean, how do you even think about with a project like that, what to prioritize into the future? I mean, honestly, how big TensorFlow got and how fast was, you know, really uh, blew me away. Um, like that was, that was kind of amazing to see. You know, I, I'm used to kind of working on these um, kind of weird technical problems that I find interesting and kind of like following my curiosity. And like I'd been sort of led to TensorFlow by sort of, you know, pulling on a yarn and kind of um, ending up there. And it was really nice to see, I mean, not just TensorFlow, but PyTorch, MXNet, all of these other um, you know, frameworks just, you know, there's been this explosion in the number of people interested. And especially there's been this explosion in the number of um, products that have been shipping, like the number of use cases that people have found for these has been um, like really mind blowing. Like I'm, I'm used to doing like open source projects, which get like, you know, 10 stars or something. And I'm like happy because um, but seeing, you know, TensorFlow and all these other frameworks just kind of get this, um, you know, mass adoption um, has been, um, yeah. I mean, I think I think it's it definitely surprised me, um, and has been really uh, kind of nice to see. What about like in terms of like what it does? How how has that evolved? Like, what kinds of like new functionality gets added to a library like that and well, why do you make so many breaking changes <laughs> so, uh, yes <laughs> i would just like to say i am sorry <laughs> um no it's it's really um it's it's such a a really interesting problem because we we're kind of almost coming back to what we were talking about with Alex, uh, you know, Krasewski is like the kind of the, you know, the, the classic example of like the ML um, paradigm that we're in at the moment is you need a lot of flexibility um, to be able to kind of experiment and create models and iterate on kind of like new approaches. But all of the approaches need to run really, 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 really fast because you're running millions of um you know iterations millions of data um points through uh, each run just in order to kind of like try out one model so you've got this really challenging combination of you need all this flexibility uh but you also need this like cutting edge performance and you're trying to squeeze out the absolute maximum uh amount of uh, throughput you can out of the hardware that you have. Um, and so you end up with this world where you have Python calling into these, these chunks of, you know, these operators or these layers where the actual operators and layers themselves are like highly, highly optimized, but you're expecting to be able to kind of plug them in to each other in very sort of arbitrary ways and preserve that like um, high performance. Um, and especially with uh, TensorFlow, you're also expecting to be able to do it across um, multiple um, kind of accelerated targets, you know, things like the uh, TPU, uh, CPUs, um, and, uh, you know, AMD, um, as well as kind of NVIDIA GPUs. Um, and Honestly, it's just a really hard engineering problem. <laughs> um, I'm, uh, I'm actually, you know, it's been a couple of years now since I've been on the sort of mainline TensorFlow team. Um, and uh, it, it blew my mind how 
many dimensions and combinations and permutations of things they had to worry about um, in terms of you know getting this stuff just up and running and working well for people. Um, and it is tough as a as a user because you're you kind of got this space shuttle control panel full of complexity. <laughs> And you probably only want to use kind of like part of it, but everybody wants a different. Um. Right, right. Well, maybe this is this is like kind of I guess like a naive or naive question, but like when I look at the Kudanen library, it looks like pretty close to like the TensorFlow wrapper. Is that right, or is there? I mean, it seems like I mean, it seems like it kind of tries to do the same building blocks that that TensorFlow has. So I would think with like Nvidia, it'd be a lot of just passing information down into um, yeah, I mean, where I saw a lot of complexity was around things like the networking and the distribution and the very fast um, kind of making sure that you didn't end up um, getting uh, bottlenecked on data transfer uh, as you're kind of like shuttling stuff around and you know we you know we've had to go in and like you know mess around with jpeg encoding and like try different libraries to figure out which one would be faster because that starts to become the bottleneck at some point when, when you're throwing you know, this stuff onto the gpu uh fast enough and i have to admit though i'm getting out of my like i've i've looked at that code in wonder <laughs> i have not <laughs> I have not tried to fix uh, fix issues there, so I'm uh... amazing. I guess one more question on the topic: How do you test all these hardware environments? Like, do you, do you have to like set up the hardware somewhere to to run all these things before you ship the library? Well, that's that's another um, pretty like the the task of doing kind of the continuous integration and the testing across all of these different pieces of hardware. Um, and all the different combinations of, oh, have you got two cards in your machine? Have you got four? Have you got, like, you know, this version of Linux? Are you running on Windows? Um, you know, which versions of the drivers do you have? Um, and, you know, which versions of the accelerator, you know, the QDNN, um, and all of these, um, there's, there are sort of, you know, farms full of these you know machines where we're trying to test all of these different combinations and permutations or as many as we can to try and like actually make sure that stuff works um, and it, as you can imagine it's it's not it's not a straightforward task <laughs> all right well we're, we're getting close to time and we always end with two questions that i want to save time for um one question is what is an underrated topic in machine learning that you would like to investigate if you had some extra time? Oh, um, well, data sets. The common theme that I've seen throughout all the time I've worked with, you know, I've ended up working with hundreds of teams who are creating products using machine learning. And almost always what they find is that investing time in improving their data sets is a much better return on investment than trying to tweak their architectures or hyperparameters or things like that. Um, and there are very few tools out there for actually doing useful things with data sets and like improving data sets and understanding data sets and gathering uh, data sets, you know, data points and like cleaning up labels and um, so I really think, and I'm starting to see, I think Andrew Ung and some other people have been talking about sort of data-centric um, approaches, and I'm starting to see more focus on that. Um, but I think that that's going to just continue and it's going to be, um, you know, I feel like it, as the ML world is maturing and more people are going through that experience of trying to put a product out and realizing, oh, my God, we need better data tools, um, there's going to be like way more demand and uh, way more focus on that. So that that is that is an extremely uh, interesting area for me. 
Well, you may have answered my last my last question, but I think you're well qualified <laughs> to answer it. Having done a bunch of ML startups and then you know working on TensorFlow, like when you think about um, deploying an ML model in the real world and getting it to work for a useful purpose, um, what do you what do you see as the major bottlenecks? I guess I guess data sets is is one I agree is maybe the biggest one, but do you see other yeah. stuff? Um, so another big problem is there's this kind of artificial um, distinction between the people who create models who often kind of come from a research background and the people who have to deploy them. And what will often happen uh, is that kind of the model creation people will, you know, get as far as getting an eval that shows that their, um, you know, model is reaching a certain level of accuracy uh, in their like Python environment. And they'll say, okay, I'm done. Like, here's the, you know, here's the sort of checkpoints for this model, which is great. And then just hand that over to the people who are going to like deploy it on like a Android application. Um, and the problem there is that there's all sorts of things like the actual data in the application itself, uh, may be quite different to the training data. Um, you're almost certainly going to have to do some stuff to it like quantization or some kind of thing that involves retraining in order to have something that's optimal for the device that you're actually uh, shipping on. Um, and there's just a lot of really useful feedback that you can get from trying this out in a real device that someone can hold in their hand and use that you just don't get from the uh, eval um, use case. Um, so coming back to uh, like actually Pete Skomarok and I, I, I first met him when he was part of um, uh, the whole uh, you know DJ Patil and the uh, like the LinkedIn crew doing kind of some of the you know really early data science stuff. Um, they had this idea, and I think it was DJ who came up with the um, sort of the naming of like you know data science and data scientists as somebody who would own the full stack of um, taking everything from doing the data analysis to coming up with, you know, sort of uh, models and things on it to actually deploying those on the website and then kind of like taking ownership of that whole end-to-end uh, -end process. Um, and the teams I've seen be really successful at deploying ML products, they've had people who formally or informally have taken on that hot responsibility for the whole thing and kind of have the people who are writing the inner loops of the assembly kind of sitting next to the people who are doing the, um, you know, creating the models. And the team who created MobileNet, Mobile Vision, um, with like Andrew Howard and Benoit Jacob, um, like they were a great example of that. They all work very, very closely together doing everything from like, coming up with new model techniques to figuring out how they're actually going to like run on real hardware at the kind of like, you know, the really low level. Um, so that's, that's really some, that's one of the biggest things that I'm really hoping to see change in the next few years is more people can adopt that model. Well said. Thanks so much, Pete. That was, that was super fun. No, thanks Lucas. <laughs> If you're enjoying this interview series, the most helpful thing that you can do for us is leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. And really, we do these shows so that people will watch them. And what I really want is more people to find it. So if you leave us a review, I really appreciate it.